0: Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell.
1: And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I pledge you that we shall neither commit nor provoke aggression, that we shall neither flee nor invoke the threat of force, that we shall never negotiate out of fear, and we shall never fear to negotiate. Terror is not a new weapon. Throughout history, it has been used by those who could not prevail either by persuasion or example, but inevitably they fail either because men are not afraid to die for a life worth living or because the terrorists themselves came to realize that free men cannot be frightened by threats and that aggression would meet its own response. And it is in the light of that history that every nation today should know be he friend or foe, that the United States has both the will and the weapons to join free men in standing up to their responsibilities. All free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin, and therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, "Ich bin ein Berliner." The path we have chosen for the present is full of hazards, as all paths are. But it is the one most consistent with our character and courage as a nation and our commitments around the world. The cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. We choose to go to the moon. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived, and that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, Enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. Whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if, in short, he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? Who among us would then be content with the counsels of patience and delay, one hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves. Yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control.
0: Today is November 22nd, 2021. It marks the 58th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The sound and the fury over his assassination is in its twilight. Only the government and its refusal to give way to what they still know about what really happened, only that is between the past and what is now a harmony with past events, no matter how horrible they were. President Lincoln was assassinated a little more than 150 years ago. We are still fascinated by those events. But in Lincoln's case, the pursuit of a conspiracy that reached to the top of the Confederate government formally passed to the ages as a matter of true concern. Still, regardless of who was behind killing Lincoln, you can truly imagine what might have been, had Lincoln lived. I think the same is true for John F. Kennedy. Think back to 1964, when the three civil rights workers were killed in Philadelphia, Mississippi, at the beginning of a confederated onslaught to teach African Americans about their voting rights. And so many other events like it, the March in Selma, Alabama by Martin Luther King. Those events took place almost 100 years after Lincoln pushed, pulled, and cajoled the nation into abolishing slavery and amending our Constitution. Would real change have taken so long had Lincoln's life not been cut short? Or should we just better understand that there would not have been a 1964 at all had he not lived and died for this cause? And that it may have been another hundred years more had it not been for the courage of one man, Lincoln, giving his own life in that moment. We don't know, really, but we do know that the course of history was forever altered. Lincoln, too knew of the dangers that night as he headed to Ford's Theater. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton himself exhorted Lincoln not to go, and he even pulled the regular guard trying to bully the president into not going. But Kennedy and Lincoln were intelligent men, and they both knew the danger of that moment. Lincoln heading up to the box at Ford's Theater without full and proper guard. Kennedy driving through Dallas in a limousine without a bubble top. He, too, without full and proper guard. They were both going to enjoy the moment, whatever dangers it might bring. And it was not just garden-variety danger. This was the ultimate act of assassination, something that, as a president, is always looming. There had been many attempts on Lincoln's life, including one where his top hat was nearly shot off as he rode his carriage through Washington. Weary from four years of war within our nation in a conflict where more American men died in that war than have died in any war before or since. Maybe, in a sense, it was a fate of relief for him, perhaps feeling relinquished from the weight of the loftiest duties of the land. He had his own sort of melancholy, you know, that would later be studied and written about. How could a man of such greatness achieve so much while carrying the burden of what is now known in the modern world as a mental health issue? He did, and he did it better than just about any other man ever could have. Kennedy had his own pathos. He was sicker than he let on to be, suffering from Addison's disease. Despite these human sufferings they each had, we will always remember these two men and their beautifully iconic portraits taken at the height of their generosity to the country. I remember Lincoln every time I pull out a $5 bill or see the now and even rarer occasional penny. I collected a few coins as a kid and remember the very special 50-cent piece minted for Kennedy and the one year that it was pure silver. There is no correlation as to relative worth here. Lincoln's contribution was not tenfold of Kennedy's. Kennedy's was not fiftyfold of Lincoln's. Their gifts to the nation were both priceless. Both of these men, unless some current generation chooses to rewrite the history of it, will forever be in our own minds as a perfect profile in courage. This podcast has been about the story of the JFK assassination itself. Certainly, the assassination story reads and feels like an Agatha Christie novel, or maybe a John Grisham novel, a whodunit wrapped in a more modern intrigue. But it's easy to get lost in that, and forget that this story is really about a brilliant man who exhibited a great deal of courage, a man who comes along very rarely in life, and then, by God's will was put in just the right place to do big things, and that he did. Kennedy did not have to suffer through four years of civil war, and he never wrote a letter like Lincoln did to sweet little Mrs. Lydia Parker Bixby, who had just lost five of her own sons in the War of the Rebellion. He did, however, skillfully maneuver in such a way as to save the world, at least once, from true peril, including a nuclear showdown. That really did come dangerously close to occurring. And that would have been far more catastrophic than the bloodiest period in the history of the United States, the one that Lincoln faced and resided over. But Kennedy knew war, too. He served in the South Pacific. He nearly lost his life there, and he spent the rest of his life living with injuries that, for many others, were completely debilitating. But not for Kennedy. He continued to reach. JFK managed to make it look like it was a natural part of Camelot. And if you had not read a bit of history about him, maybe you would not even have known that those injuries had occurred. Especially if you were just watching a film clip or listening to his untethered voice. But when he went to bed at night, doing what all mere mortals do before they hit the hay, he would unstrap a back brace that was necessary to keep the pain from completely debilitating him during the course of the day, and for him to be able to walk upright. It was a step ahead of what FDR faced. It certainly was not polio, but it was enough to have to use arm braces from time to time when the back brace was just not enough. In 1957, Kennedy published Profiles in Courage, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize. It's a beautiful book with a foreword by Robert Kennedy, too in his own words jfk described this book as a book about the most admirable of human virtues courage he would say it was grace under pressure ernest hemingway defined it and these are the stories and pressures of eight united states senators and the grace with which they endured them i have several copies of this book in my library it's a great book for anyone to read still God never entrusted me with anything that big. But then again, only a handful of us on the earth are entrusted with anything that big. But whatever it is that we are engaged in on a personal level, whatever we are entrusted with, it may take just as much courage. JFK knew that this one virtue, courage, is universal in its application. Few people know that JFK was an avid historian. And he wrote these stories about some men that you might recognize, and some that were less recognizable. John Quincy Adams was at the top of the list, and then came Daniel Webster, and then Thomas Hart Benton, and then Sam Houston, and then Edmund G. Ross, and then one that is rather hard to pronounce, Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar. And then came George Norris, and then finally Robert A. Taft. He would end with lesser comments on other men of courage. I mentioned a moment ago that JFK knew war. In an updated version of Profiles in Courage, his daughter, Caroline Kennedy, tells the story of where JFK truly began his own public service career. It was as a PT boat commander in the South Pacific in World War II. These are her words. While on patrol on the night of August 2, 1943, his boat, PT-109, was rammed by a Japanese destroyer, the Amagiri, and it exploded into flames, throwing crew members into the burning water. Two were killed, and one was burned so badly he couldn't swim. Catching a strap of the injured man's life jacket in his teeth, Lieutenant Kennedy towed the wounded sailor to the nearest island, three miles away and for the next six days, with little food or water, the men hid, fearing they would be captured by the Japanese. Each evening, Kennedy swam in shark-infested waters to other islands, seeking help until he was spotted by two Solomon Islanders, Ironi Kumana and Biakogas. They picked a coconut up, upon which Kennedy carved a message, which they took to the hideout of a nearby Australian coast watcher. That finally led to their rescue. In the early part of this century, the National Geographic Society, using underwater cameras, discovered the sunken PT-109. And the same expedition members met Ironi, the man who carried the simple message on a coconut that saved JFK's life and changed the course of history for our country and indeed the world. You never know what God has in store for you at least while you inhabit this green earth. That moment, God was not finished with John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Kennedy, like Lincoln, was followed in office by a fellow from the South named Johnson. The first was impeached, and the second barely escaped prosecution for crimes of corruption, or maybe even more. Interestingly enough, there were hearings that would have led to that and that were being conducted in the United States Congress right as the shots rang out in Dealey Plaza. Those shots killed that investigation, too. Neither of the Johnsons had the true gravitas of their predecessor, although the latter Johnson had a sort of greatness in his own right, and he went on to pass landmark legislation that would try to equal the playing field for civil rights and create what was then known as the Great Society. It's hard to go on when these kind of losses occur. They are guttural, and they shake people and they shake nations to the bone. But people and nations do go on. Ours did. Lyndon Johnson would take the reins right around Thanksgiving and would address the nation in a Thanksgiving season broadcast, attempting to make a transition from the old to the new. It was awkward, like an older, distant uncle trying to assuage a child after the death of the father. And in this case, it was an uncle and his brother that never really got along in the first place. It was a Thanksgiving message that simply lacked the heart and the soul that the country had been feeding on under John Kennedy, and it highlighted what had just been lost. It was heartbreaking to the nation. But in the end, all is not lost. The world was given a gift. And as JFK would say, the Lord's work here on this earth is left to us. And so how we go about doing that remains largely dependent on our own personal profile and courage. I've been blessed today and for the past year to bring these episodes to you, and God willing, I'll continue to do that. But for now, God bless you all in this season of Thanksgiving.
2: My fellow Americans, on yesterday I went before the Congress to speak for the first time as President of the United States. Tonight on this Thanksgiving, I come before you to ask your help, to ask your strength, to ask your prayers that God may guard this republic and guide my every labor. All of us have lived through seven days that none of us will ever forget. We are not given the divine wisdom to answer why this has been, but we are given the human duty of determining what is to be, what is to be for America, for the world, for the cause we lead for all the hopes that live in our hearts. A great leader is dead. A great nation must move on. Yesterday is not ours to recover, but tomorrow is ours to win or to lose. I am resolved that we shall win the tomorrows before us, so I ask you to join me in that resolve, determined that from this midnight of tragedy we shall move toward a new American greatness. More than any generation before us, we have cause to be thankful, so thankful on this Thanksgiving Day. Our harvests are bountiful. Our factories are flourish. Our homes are safe. Our defenses are secure. We live in peace. The goodwill of the world pours out for us. But more than these blessings, we know tonight that our system is strong, strong and secure, a deed that was meant to tear us apart has bound us together. Our system has passed, you have passed, a great test. You have shown what John F. Kennedy called upon us to show in his proclamation of this thanksgiving, that decency of purpose, that steadfastness of resolve, and that strength of will which we inherited from our forefathers better conveys what is best for America than this. On Saturday, when these great burdens had been mine, only ours. The first two citizens to call upon me and to offer their whole support were Dwight D. Eisenhower and Harry S. Truman. Since last Friday, Americans have turned to the good to the decent values of our life. These have served us, yes these have saved us. The service of our public institution and our public men is the salvation of us all, from the Supreme Court to the States. And how much better would it be, how much more sane it would be, how much more decent and American it would be, if all Americans could spend their fortunes and could give their time and spend their energies helping our system and its servants to solve your problems instead of pouring out the venom and the hate that stalemate us in progress. I have served in Washington 32 years, 32 years yesterday. I have seen five presidents fill this awesome office. I have known them well, and I have counted them all as friends. President Herbert Hoover, President Franklin Roosevelt, President Harry Truman, President Dwight Eisenhower, and President John Kennedy. In each administration, the greatest burden that the president had to bear had been the burden of his own countrymen's unthinking and unreasoning hate and division. So in these days, the fate of this office is the fate of us all. I would ask all Americans on this day of prayer and reverence to think on these things. Let all who speak and all who teach and all who preach and all who publish And all who broadcast and all who read or listen, let them reflect upon their responsibilities to bind our wounds, to heal our sores, to make our society well and whole for the tasks ahead of us. It is this work that I most want us to do to banish rancor from our words and malice from our hearts, to close down the poison spring of hatred and intolerance and fanaticism, to perfect our unity north and south, east and west, to hasten the day when bias of race, religion, and region is no more, and to bring the day when our great energies and decencies and spirit will be free of the burdens that we have borne too long. Our view is outward. Our thrust is forward. But we remember in our hearts this brave young man who lies in honored eternal rest across the Potomac. We remember him. We remember his wonderful and courageous widow that we all love. We remember Caroline and John, and all the great family who gave the nation this son and brother. And to honor his memory and the future of the works that he started, I have today determined that station number one of the Atlantic Missile Range and the NASA Launch Operations Center in Florida shall hereafter be known as the John F. Kennedy Space Center. I have also acted today with the understanding and the support of my friend, the Governor of Florida, Farish Brown, to change the name of Cape Canaveral. It shall be known hereafter as Cape Kennedy. On this Thanksgiving Day, as we gather in the warmth of our families, in the mutual love and respect which we have for one another. And as we bow our heads in submission to divine providence, let us also thank God for the years that He gave us inspiration through His servant, John F. Kennedy. Let us today renew our dedication to the ideals and ideals that are American. Let us pray for His divine wisdom in vanishing from our land any injustice or intolerance or oppression to any of our fellow Americans, whatever their opinion, whatever the color of their skin. For God made all of us, not some of us, in his image. All of us, not just some of us, are his children. And finally, to you as your President, I ask that you remember your country and remember me each day in your prayers. And I pledge to you the best within me to work for a new American greatness, a new day when peace is more secure, when justice is more universal when freedom is more strong in every home of all mankind. Thank you and good night.
0: Thank you for listening to Episode 67, a special anniversary edition of JFK, The Enduring Secret.